This is Undark. We're a magazine devoted to exploring the intersection of science and society, and we're this podcast. Hello again. Welcome to Episode 15. I'm David Corcoran. For our cover story, The Virus Hunters. Undark reporters have a way of traveling to unlikely places, but this is definitely the most claustrophobic journey we've ever covered. Jeff Marlowe found himself in the Democratic Republic of Congo in a bat cave. We'll find out why in a moment. Jeff Marlowe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Great to be speaking with you. So first, let's talk about the big subject of your piece, viruses. I know we've all had them, but I'm not sure we all know what they are. Can you tell us exactly what is a virus? Absolutely. Viruses are really biological marvels. They're small containers, essentially, of genetic material, either DNA or RNA, that are encapsulated by a protein shell. They're very simple, deceptively so, really, and very small, often 20 to about 300 nanometers across. They infect every living thing out there, and we're really just starting to understand what they mean ecologically and in terms of human health. Now, most viruses are not dangerous, right? Some are even beneficial? That's right. Most of the ones that we've heard of are, you know, the scary things, the Ebola or SARS or the plague, things like that. But viruses are everywhere, and they outnumber microbes about 10 to 1 in most ecosystems. There are 50 million viruses in just a teaspoon of seawater. So the fact that they're everywhere and we don't constantly get sick from them means that they are not all as terrible as we think they might be. There's also a lot of new research in terms of how some types of viruses could be helpful. In mouse guts, for example, they kind of help control the microbiome and influence mouse health, and something very similar is probably happening in humans. Okay, so your piece, however, focuses on the scary ones, and some are really formidable. You've used the words chillingly impressive. Um, What do you mean by that? Viruses are just such efficient bundles of genetic material, and it's astounding that they're able to dispatch living beings millions of times their size. The smallest viruses have just two different genes, whereas humans have 20,000. So the fact that they're so efficient at using that limited genetic resource to cause extreme harm is, is amazing. My favorite example of virus metabolic efficiency is this idea of overlapping reading frames. So in all other types of life, you have a gene, and that produces a very specific protein. It's like reading a book where you read a sentence and it gives you a certain meaning. But with overlapping reading frames, if you just sort of transition the word length or, for example, change all the spaces in that sentence you're reading, you'll have a whole different meaning. It's the same text, but multiple products come out of it. So this is just a great example of how efficient viruses have become. Give us an example or two of of some of these really nasty viruses that have caused terrible pandemics. I'm thinking of Ebola and SARS. So Ebola is certainly the one that's on everyone's mind, especially in the DRC where where this work took me. Ebola, like most other uh, pandemic types of viruses, begin through spillover events when viruses cross over from an animal host into humans. So it's these human-animal interactions that are 
the targets of a lot of virus hunters. Let's talk about the global project you describe in your piece. It's called PREDICT. How extensive is it? What are its goals and how does it work? PREDICT really is a, a global project. It's led by a team at University of California in Davis, but it's funded by USAID, the Agency of International Development. And it began in 2009, and they're in 31 different countries uh, from Asia to Africa and South America. The goal of PREDICT is to build this global system to detect viruses that could spill over and cause a pandemic. They're focusing on these spillover events, but in a departure from what has been done in the past, they're really taking an ecological approach. They're you know, taking a step back from the hospitals and the chaos that happens when a pandemic is in full swing and thinking about how viruses interact ecologically with animals, with human communities encroaching into wild places. And it's really this broader look at how viruses interact all around us and how they could enter the human chain that is unique to predict. So there are teams all around the world in these 31 countries going to specific hotspots, locations where there's a lot of interaction between animals and people, and looking at what types of viruses are there and, and if they could be dangerous. And that brings us to the bat cave that we talked about <laughs> at the beginning. Uh, first off, tell us about the doctor you followed there. He is quite a character. Dr. Prem Mulembakani is his name. He's the country coordinator um, in the DRC for the PREDICT project. And everyone knows him as Dr. Prem. He's a, he's a very jovial guy and in some ways is really uniquely suited to lead this, this project in the DRC. He grew up between Belgium and the DRC. Uh, his father, a native of the DRC, is a, um, was a highly sought after soccer coach. So they sort of moved between Africa and Europe. And through this process, Prem really saw the differences between Western Europe and Central Africa. And to him, it was all about health, that this was the baseline of what was leading to the huge economic disparities between these two places. His father, through his contacts in Belgium, had kind of lined up cushy jobs for Prem once he graduated college, but he wasn't interested. He wanted to really go work in rural locations and figure out ways to improve community health in a way that would then improve his country's economy. So just the stories of decades of remote work and sort of interacting with the Civil War, as it raged through the DRC, he has a lot of material, and he should certainly be writing an autobiography, if you ask me. So why did he take you to a bat cave? This bat cave in southwestern DRC was one of these hotspots, one of these locations where human communities are starting to really encroach upon and interact with wild animals. This one, they kind of have a network of informants throughout the country of people who are on the lookout for either markets where wild animals are being brought in, often illegally, or just other places where humans and farming communities are getting close to wild animals. This particular bat cave in a small village called Wene is known as a guano repository. So for decades, people have been going to this cave to collect guano to spread on their fields. This is an area of intense onion growth and harvesting. So this was a spot where people would go into the cave, collect a bunch of guano, maybe interact with the bats, and um, hope for the best, really. So 
the goal was to look at this bat population and see if they were harvesting some potentially dangerous viruses. Because viruses can, as you said, can jump from animals to people, and bats turn out to be an unusually efficient vector. That's right. Yep. Bats, um, whether they bite people or their droppings end up on fruits or vegetables, it's one of the more common ways that viruses spill over into humans. So you have this wonderful scene of uh, Dr. Mulembakani in the bat cave collecting samples and the uh, other human workers there kind of uh, bemused by what's going on. <laughs> and then um, he takes the samples back to a laboratory. And I was really struck with how meticulous these scientists are with the samples they find. Uh, can you talk about their process and their protocols? Certainly. The whole objective of this project is to compare how viruses interact ecologically across the whole planet. So you need to have a standardized protocol to do this. If one person in the DRC is doing something, you know, using a certain solution at a different temperature for 30 seconds as opposed to 45 seconds, that's going to change your results. So this project, recognizing that it's a global objective, has been very rigorous about coming up with a standardized protocol. And the main thing that that starts and ends with is this cold chain, the idea of preserving all of the samples at very cold temperatures so that they do not degrade. We're looking for RNA viruses. So RNA degrades very quickly once it's removed from the bat. And if you don't get it cold immediately, then you're going to be left with very uh, compromised results. So that's where it starts, is dipping these samples in liquid nitrogen out in the field, bringing it back to the lab, doing some genetic isolation analyses to make sure you've got some interesting genes. If they're deemed interesting enough, those are sent off to Germany or the United States where the genetic sequences are read. And those results are then sent back to the team in the DRC and decisions are made accordingly. The uh, researchers that you interviewed are incredibly dedicated but they are up against some real formidable obstacles. Um, let's talk about some of them. One is just the sheer number of viruses out there. It's a real needle in a haystack problem, isn't it? It is. So just in terms of raw number of viral particles, I had mentioned earlier that you know there can be millions in a teaspoon of water. The PREDICT project actually has produced one of the first kind of statistically valid estimates of how many viruses there are. And that's about 320,000. That's the number of unknown viruses in mammals alone. So there's a long way to go to really categorizing all of them and understanding how they work and if they could be dangerous. Right. We don't know which ones could make the jump from animals to humans or what might happen when they do. And uh, you mentioned that the people who are most at risk, like the workers in the in the bat cave you describe, are not necessarily all that vigilant about the dangers. That's right. And to me, the surprising thing was the disconnect between name recognition of things like Ebola. Everyone's heard of that, and they realize that it's a major threat to their lives and the lives of their loved ones. And yet the day-to-day -day activity and understanding of how viruses could jump from the very activities they're engaging in isn't necessarily there. And I found that to be pretty interesting. It's mostly a, a factor that I think we all experience of if you have not directly experienced it, or if you can't see it, you'd probably, it doesn't seem like as much of a threat as it could be. 
Do the scientists feel like they have the resources they need to get on top of this problem? Not necessarily. I mean, that's a tough question for them to answer because you make do with what you have. So they're doing a pretty admirable job, I think, of making the resources stretch as far as they can and kind of prioritizing what to really invest in. The clearest evidence of that was the idea of getting liquid nitrogen on site in Kinshasa and taking it out to the field. There kind of is no other liquid nitrogen source for thousands of miles around. And this allows for the cold chain to be preserved throughout the sampling process. So there are other things like a sequencing machine. If that were on site, that would make things go faster. But something like the liquid nitrogen ensures that the samples are legitimate regardless of how long it takes to get the sequences read. So that's really a strategic use of, of the resources they do have. There's also an issue of making sure that the reagents and supplies that come into the DRC are functional. One of the lab workers tested 50 different DNA extraction kits to make sure that that genetic material you're getting out of the viruses is representative of what's there. Of those 50 different kits, she tested only four of them actually worked. So that was an enormous waste of resources that was avoided by making sure that you're going with the kits that actually work. And meanwhile, while they're up against all these uh, logistical problems, the viruses are lurking. And as you mentioned earlier, they're quite unpredictable. They can mutate and take other forms before they jump from one species to another. So time is not exactly on our side. It sure doesn't seem that way, no. And just last week, a a new spillover event of Ebola has been documented. That's in the northern DRC. So this happens, you know, relatively frequently. And the fact that human societies are continuing to encroach into wild animal habitats, the globalized transportation network is just getting more and more interconnected. So the numbers and the trends of human movement are are really not in our favor. So that adds even more urgency to this kind of work. I wanted to ask you about uh, one other type of animal uh, you visited, and that is the bonobo. You went to a sanctuary there. What's it like, and uh, why is it uh, considered a hub for this type of research? The bonobo sanctuary is on the outskirts of Kinshasa. Kinshasa is an enormous city of about 11 million people, and it's been expanding as people from more rural areas of the DRC come to the big city in hopes of jobs and other opportunities. So this sanctuary that used to be kind of in pristine forest, separated from the city, is now surrounded by it. And this means that there are a lot of different ecologies that are coming together at this particular spot. So the bonobos themselves come from often rescued from the black market. There's a trade of kind of getting baby bonobos for pets. And by rescuing these animals from markets around Kinshasa or elsewhere in the country, there seems to be a way to rehabilitate them and ultimately introduce them back into the wild. So to mediate that process, there's a group outside of Kinshasa at this sanctuary that takes in about two or three dozen bonobos and nurses them back to health, socializes them into communities, and then hopefully reintroduces them. But because of this sort of ecological mashup of mosquitoes and intensive farming going on around the sanctuary, there's a lot of different microbial transfer that's going on. And this has led to a couple of different outbreaks of viral disease. 
the predict team was brought in to kind of take a look at this and ultimately solved the problem. They sent off the sequences, found that it was a type of encephalomyocarditis virus, and that helped to kind of figure out how to treat the bonobos and prevent this from happening again. In terms of why the predict team is doing this, why they're interested in bonobos, obviously they're a very close relative of humans. And if this virus can gain a foothold in the bonobos, it suggests that it could also spill over into humans on the outskirts of this enormous city. So it's been a really valuable collaboration between these two groups. Well, speaking of humans, you're a human. <laughs> Were you worried at all uh, when you went out on this story? And, and what kind of precautions did you take? I was not particularly worried. Uh, perhaps I should have been more so. <laughs> but I think just appreciating that this is a major needle in the haystack problem is part of it. Everyone from Dr. Prem to the, the villagers weren't always taking enormous care when it approaching some of these areas, but anyone who directly handled the bats had to be in huge amounts of protective gear. There were multiple layers of Tyvek and three layers of gloves and full face shields. And that's because once you start to handle the bat fluids, that's where the viruses are and where they could be transmitted. So as long as I was staying away from the, the bat fluids, which I certainly was, then uh, there's not necessarily that much to worry about. Well, it is intriguing, and it's an incredibly important story as well. So I want to thank you for doing it for Undark, and thank you for coming onto the podcast to talk about it. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Jeff Marlowe is a postdoctoral scholar in geobiology at Harvard. He's also a science writer and the executive director of the Ad Astra Academy a nonprofit educational program that brings the excitement of exploration to communities around the world. Joining us, as always, is Seth Manukin to talk about science and the media. Hello, Seth. Hey, David, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Uh, so we're going to talk science magazines this week. And, of course, I work for one called Undark. That's uh, what this podcast is. But it turns out that Undark is kind of the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, it's an interesting topic and, and one that I've been talking about a lot recently as this year's class of my graduate students in science writing is graduating and they're talking about outlets that are available for them for the future. And I think in some ways we're in a, a very interesting moment in science journalism because in terms of staff jobs, either at metro newspapers or magazines or TV stations, we've seen an incredible shrinking of that type of position. So in that way, obviously, there's there's much less job security for fewer science writers than there would have been even a decade ago. But at the same time, something that we've seen really explode in the last five years is either online or print long-form science publications, science journalism publications. And so whereas when I was starting out in journalism, the likelihood of my getting a three or four or 5,000 word piece published within a year or two of being out of school were pretty minimal. 
now because of this proliferation of outlets, there's actually much more opportunity to do that type of sort of impactful long form work. And I think that's available to a wider number of people. It reaches a smaller audience than, you know, a, a newspaper with a circulation of half a million did or does. But you do see this sort of flowering of really, really good long form science work. So how does that happen? I I worked for a newspaper for most of my career. Uh, we know that uh, newspapers are, are, if not imploding, at least uh, shrinking in size and ambition. How is it that uh, these long-form outlets are uh, arising and succeeding? I think there are a couple of different answers to that. You know, one very obvious one is that they are not using traditional revenue models, you know, traditional revenue models being revenue based on advertising and circulation. If you look at these publications, a lot of them are funded, at least in part, by foundations. A lot of them are nonprofits. Some of them are tied to larger institutions or even other publications. So, you know, for instance, Undark is connected to the Night Science Journalism Program at MIT. Quanta, which just had sort of a relaunch and which is, I think, a, a phenomenal publication, gets a lot of support from the Simons Foundation. Nautilus, which we should probably talk about some more, got millions of dollars in, in seed money from the Templeton Foundation. So you see a slightly different model. And it, it's something that we saw a little bit and are continuing to see a little bit with investigative outlets like, like ProPublica that are set up not as a traditional journalistic institution, but as a nonprofit, instead of publishing just their own work, they partner with different places. So I think what we see in the long-form science world is sort of a continuation of this exploration of different ways to produce high-quality journalism. So uh, no reliance on advertising, which is, of course, the base that has sustained the newspaper and magazine industry for most of our lives. Uh, let's talk about that magazine, Nautilus, um, and the Templeton Foundation, which supports it. What's the story? Nautilus is, I think, a fascinating case. It launched uh, maybe five years ago, both as a print publication and online, an absolutely gorgeous print publication with thick paper stock, something they obviously put a lot of money and time and attention into design. They have single themed issues that are all focused on one concept or idea. And in their first year of eligibility, which I think was 2015, they won two National Magazine Awards, which is really stunning. It's the only publication ever to win two awards, National Magazine Awards, in, in its first year of eligibility. And since that time, it, it's really, it's been a place that I think writers have wanted to write for and, and, have, and have sought out. Unfortunately, it's come out over the past couple of months that they are experiencing a pretty severe cash crunch and have not been paying their freelancers. And not only have not been paying their freelancers, but simultaneous to that have been actively soliciting new work. It, it was something that was being talked a lot about on journalism forums and on writers forums. And then Undark actually published a piece about this, uh, talking to freelancers, I think in late April. And so what I think is so disturbing about that is that they continued to solicit 
work. And in soliciting that work, did not acknowledge uh, uh, on any level that there were writers who had been waiting three, four, five, six, sometimes eight months to get paid for assignments they had completed. And because they're soliciting long form work, you know, these are not assignments that a writer kind of can whip off in an afternoon. These are things that that took weeks and and I'm sure in some cases months of of effort. I understand that the Templeton Foundation, which has been the the main supporter of the magazine, has uh, been dialing back its support somewhat just in keeping with its with its longstanding practice, and uh, that uh, Nautilus is seeking new sources of funding from the American Association for the Advancement of Science. At the moment, all of that is pretty uncertain, I believe. Yeah. And as you said, that is very much keeping in the Templeton Foundation's sort of MO. Back now, I think in 2012, they gave it a $5 million grant for the the startup phase, essentially, and then uh, eventually gave it another $2.1 million. And since then, I think it has given it another several million dollars. So they've received somewhere close to $10 million from the Templeton Foundation. But they typically do not like to just continue to fund projects. They like to help projects get off the ground or continue to fund them at that same level. And so in the Undark story, Nautilus's publisher said that they were very close to an agreement with what sounded like the American Association for the Advancement of Science. But then when Undark actually spoke with the AAAS, that seemed much less sure than the publisher uh, made it seem to be. So I think the future there is still a little murky. I just got my latest issue of Nautilus in the mail earlier this week. It continues to be a gorgeous, very well written, you know, very admirable publication in in a lot of ways. But that's clearly something they're going to need to work out. Let's talk about a happier story, uh, Quanta Magazine. What is that? So Quanta is a, a publication that is funded by the Simons Foundation. And the Simons Foundation is a really, really interesting foundation um, run out of New York. They've always funded a lot of science. Uh, they funded a lot of research into autism specifically. And they've moved over more in the last five or so years into journalism and writing that is going to appeal to a, a general audience with the sort of investment that they have made in Quanta, which started around the same time that Nautilus did, that looks to be a pretty impressive outlet and impressive place for science writing to be just based on what they're doing there and, and who they uh, are hiring and have hired, um, including John Rennie, who is former editor-in-chief of Scientific American, a great guy, a great writer, a great editor, and he's going to be overseeing Quanta's biology coverage I'm incredibly proud to say that they hired Kevin Hartnett, who was an assistant of mine on my last book. He's actually writing about math full time for for Quanta. So it's pretty cool what they're doing. And, And what I also think is interesting about Quanta is, unlike Nautilus, they are going to exist online. And the costs that that saves are enormous. So, you know, Quanta, the Simons Foundation, is making a significant investment, but at the same time is being a little bit more directed in in how they want to get this out there. We've talked about Nautilus. We've talked about Quanta. And of course, this is the Undark podcast. But there are other science magazines as well that are springing up. Yeah, they're, they're a whole bunch, a combination of, of print and online, mostly trending towards online. But 
places that are also doing really impressive work. You have Mosaic Science, which is published by the Wellcome Trust. You have Aeon, you have Hakai. And these are all, you know, you can you can go to any of these sites and read, you know, three, four or 5,000 word pieces that are as good as anything you're going to read today. And I think that's an incredible flowering of really top-notch work. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why I hope Nautilus is able to work this out, because I think the more of these outlets we have, the, the, the better it is, not only for journalists, but also for people interested in learning and, and reading and understanding the world we live in. Sounds like uh, when nobody was looking and the newspaper and magazine industries were collapsing, we suddenly entered a, a golden age of science journalism. Yeah, well, we'll need to see in, in, in five more years how many of these are, are still up and running. But certainly right now, I think there are a lot of really incredible opportunities. Seth Mnookin is our media and science commentator. He's the author of a number of books about science and journalism, including The Panic Virus, and he's director of the Graduate Program in Science Writing here at MIT. Seth, as always, thanks. Yep, thank you so much. Imagine if you couldn't stop pulling out your own hair. It's a problem that's a lot more common than you might think. Two out of every hundred people have what's called trichotillomania, or trick. That means they compulsively pull out their eyebrows or lashes or the hair on their head. One of those people is 16-year-old Geneva Mirvold. She goes by Gigi. She and her mom, Linda, sat down with producer Eileen Shoneal in Seattle to tell their story. It all started six and a half years ago when Gigi was nine years old and traveling far, far away from the Pacific Northwest. We were in Africa and we were in this tent on a stilted walkway. In the morning, I woke up and I felt something biting me. There was a lot of red ants. It looked like she had a red blanket over her um, and it was a sea of ants. And so I was like running around and like, stomping on ants and like tearing off my pajamas because they were all over me and then I remember there's this like full-length mirror and I just remember I went up to it and I saw my eyelashes first and so I just pulled those and I was like oh that felt relieving. At the end of the trip I almost had all of them grown back actually and so we thought it was just like a one-time thing it was just kind of weird thing that I did but I just was tired and angry and wanted to go home. So I went in the bathroom and I would just go in there for like 10 minutes and just pull out everything. On the plane ride home that happened and it happened more when I got home. You might look over and she might be studying and, and she'll look like she's more of like in a dreamy phase and you'll see the hands come up and just sort of very slowly pull out and then kind of come back and then maybe find another. A lot of people, the first question they ask is like, does it hurt? And, it's, and it doesn't, it actually feels good. It feels like you're relieving stress or something like that. It has a calming effect. 
I made it worse, definitely, by thinking that she could control it more than she could. So, I mean, we went through the gamut, like, okay, let's just not do it, or why don't you try this, or to getting mad at her, like, are you kidding me? Do you not ever want to have any eyelashes? Is that what you want? I didn't really know why my mom was so concerned about it, and I didn't think that was that big of a deal. And I kind of didn't really want to stop. We went to the dermatologist, we went to a therapist, or like, is it alopecia, is her hair just falling out? I'm like, no, it's not falling out on its own. I just felt like a very scary thing, because even the adults who we went to, like the pediatrician and the therapist, they didn't really know what it was. How I figured out was I bought like a teen magazine on the way to an airport or something, and on the front of it, it said real life horror story. I couldn't stop pulling out my hair. And I was like, hmm, that sounds familiar. So I flipped to it and it was this girl talking all about trick and I didn't know what it was, but I looked it up and we finally figured out what I was dealing with. And I like put that girl's article on my wall because it was like, this is the only other person I've heard who has it. We went to somebody who specifically works on changing behaviors. And she had specific things she wanted me to ask Geneva, and then Geneva didn't want to answer them. I lied compulsively for as long as she would ask me those questions. Then in middle school, I, I think it was sixth grade, I started pulling my head. What I would do was I would wrap the strand of hair around my fingers until I reached the scalp, and then I just rip it really hard, really fast. And then I'd just drop it on the floor <laughs> um, beside my desk. And then I'd look down and see a lot of dark blonde rings on the floor that were like the thickness of like a dime or something like that. I was in eighth grade history class, like halfway into the period. I realized that some people were taking notice of what I was doing. So then I gathered up all the rings from the floor of my hair and I walked over the trash can on the other side of the room and everyone kind of looked over at me. I sat back down and I didn't make eye contact with anyone. I think middle school is a really difficult time for a lot of teens, whether they're showing it or not. And I think having something that's fairly definitive, like you're not having any brows or lashes, is right there on your face. A lot of people would just look at me and they just, they kind of like did a double take. Kind of got really, really low self-esteem and I feel very bad about myself. The other thing is you pull out an eyelash in two seconds, one second, whatever it takes to pull out an eyelash. It takes 16 weeks to grow an eyelash and an eyebrow back from, you know, start to finish. That's why the bracelets were kind of a fun new development. The bracelets are like a leather strap. You fasten it kind of like a watch. On the top, it looks kind of like a Fitbit. And basically what it is, is you download an app on your phone called Slightly Robot and you connect the bracelets to it. So you basically do the motion that you do when you're pulling. And I press calibrate. You put your hand up to your face and it'll start buzzing. The bracelets actually help you recognize what you're doing and know that it's time to stop doing that. When I first started wearing them, which was this year, people would be like, oh my gosh, what's that? Is it a watch? And then they asked if it was a Fitbit, and then I'd eventually be like, okay, well, now I have to tell you. I've become a lot more open about it, and I think that helps me accept it more myself.
the bracelet says changed our relationship because it's taken a lot of tension out of like, uh, do I point it out right now? She's having a, a moment. Like the only time I would say the bracelets were not helpful was I'm consciously thinking, I don't care what the bracelet thinks right now. I'm gonna pull my hair because it feels good. But I don't think there's a real way to stop that other than myself just stopping. I don't have to blow this away completely. I just have to learn to control it. I don't want it to let it control how I'm feeling or like how I feel about myself. I want to be able to feel confident in myself without having to worry about what other people think about the way I look. That's, that's my goal right now. What do you hope people learn from your story? The hardest thing for me was feeling that I was the only one who struggled with this. This disorder is a lot of things, but it is not one that you have to be alone in. It's not a struggle that you have to face like with nobody else there because there are people who know what you're going through and there are people who will be on your side. And that's all for this episode of Undark, a project of the Night Science Journalism Program at MIT. Our show is produced by Katie Heiler. We'll be back next month with more news and interviews from the intersection of science and society. Until then, I'm David Corcoran for Undark.